Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to this edition of the Food Focus podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. On the docket today, Burger Chain Backyard Burgers is in re-expansion mode. Maxwell House releases a new product line and Campbell's Soup grows through acquisition. We'll start off with PepsiCo after this word from Third Wave Water and ThirdWaveWater.com, who is the presenter of today's podcast. If you ever wonder why the coffee you make at home never quite tastes as good as the coffee you get at a coffee shop, Well, water conditioning is the answer, and with third wave water, you can actually do the same thing that coffee shops spend thousands of dollars per year on for just 10 cents per cup in the privacy of your home. Check them out, thirdwavewater.com. Use the promo code FOCUS for 10% off your first order. PepsiCo did release their earnings this week on Tuesday, July 11th, and Looking at it, the company appears strong as it sees both higher revenue and profits that beat expectations for their 2017 second quarter. And I think it's strong for a company that is reeling maybe a little bit from the appearance of soda and the perception of soda to have built both revenue and profits in what was, we were led to believe, a trying quarter for the beverage industry. This is an industry that PepsiCo is involved in that really has been evolving over the last few years. You see soda sales declining for the company. With this earnings report for their second quarter, you see that this beating of expectations really does signify that soda is not necessarily declining. But moreover, PepsiCo has diversified their portfolio in such a way that they can really hedge against the declines in certain areas. And I think this is really telling throughout the conference call with their CEO speaking highly of this last quarter's performance. You see, as you mentioned, Trent, revenue did rise as well as profit. Revenue rose 2.1% to $15.71 billion for the quarter, beating average estimates by around $100 million. Revenue growth of 2% actually surpasses the now average growth for this last fiscal year. It's coming in around 1.8%. Net income for the company was up to $2.11 billion, so a very profitable company. If you're looking at that bottom line, or $1.46 per share, excluding one-time charges for the company, the company made around $1.50 per share, which that figure was still better than analyst expectations coming in around $1.40. But if you look at management, they said that they really were expecting these positive results. They came in line with their own company expectations, and it was a function of not only a large geographical footprint now, but their strong brand in the eyes of the consumer. This is something that they mentioned several times throughout the conference call and that their brand is still extremely strong in the most important areas of their business and most important areas. By that, I mean the United States. And despite all of this, all this positive news, Gross margin did drop by around 55 basis points, which affected operating margins as well, around 20 basis points in decline there. But the company, for its global presence and its largest categories by revenue, saw large growth in North America. This should come as no surprise since their holdings include a massive beverage portfolio and, of course, the Frito-Lay snack division alongside Quaker Foods. As for the drink division, they saw overall business growth of 1%. 
and what they call the North American Beverage Branch, and they saw 2% in terms of gap revenues overall. The 1% is what they call organic growth or growth from within the company. Revenue of $5.24 billion in this particular category helped the company's bottom line as pricing did increase 1%. Despite competitive pressures, they were able to extract some pricing increases in order to partially offset what they claim to be cost inflation. And we look a little bit further in those increased costs. We see that raw materials have actually cost the company a little less money year to date. But it was those operating costs that are said to be an issue, most likely due to increasing wages. But they didn't actually signify exactly what those increased operating costs were. But the company has been leveraging partnerships and that's helped with widened distribution throughout the United States. Last year, we had actually spoke about Coca-Cola and Pepsi trying to get into more convenience stores and increasing the local partnerships inside the United States to increase the overall volume of beverages. But we see that wise spending on marketing in the beverage segments has really helped to increase that volume and increase the demand along with that important brand awareness that they had mentioned throughout the call. Management said they are encouraged to see continued strength in their portfolio and good growth in Gatorade and in their water portfolio, which has benefited from the introduction of Life Water, which we had covered on the Food Focus podcast last year. They also increased their distribution of Lipton and picked up Rockstar as another benefit in the beverage segment in North America. They mentioned also that convenience store growth in particular is there, and that segment is still growing in terms of their distribution to that segment, but has tapered off a little bit since the successes they saw in 2016 where sales to convenience stores shot through the roof in terms of their annual growth rate. Strong Pepsi Zero Sugar performance as well. They didn't go into sodas very deep aside from this, but you can see that it's intimated that obviously the diet zero sugar and alternate sweetener lines that they have in terms of soda may see a boost due to the increased prevalence of not only soda taxes, but also awareness throughout the country in terms of knowing exactly what people are purchasing, the sugar counts and that type of thing. We'll actually on next week's Retail Focus have a retail grocery dietitian on to talk a little bit about how consumer preferences have been shaped by increased information that's disseminated to the public about the sugar content and about other things like GMOs. And Pepsi certainly stands to benefit from marketing some of their alternative sweetener sodas if they can do so in a proper manner and if they can find the alternative sweeteners that won't send the web a buzz and won't make people fearful of their product. Let's talk now about their Frito-Lay division. This division saw a 3% increase in top-line revenue, showing that they can beat out marginal growth in beverage sales with their Frito-Lay division. This is a function of a 1% increase in volume, so the actual amount that they were shipping out to distributors, and a 3% increase in pricing. So with both volume and pricing, this built into their top-line revenue increase in the Frito-Lay division. The company is beginning to advertise the smaller, higher-margin snacks, focusing less in advertising channels on the bulk items. And You can see this firsthand. If you go into a 
big box retailer like Sam's Club or Costco, where the deals on larger volume items just aren't nearly as good as they were a couple of years ago. And you're also seeing a lot of the products be de-emphasized from end caps in front of the store displays, in part because the Frito-Lay division is pouring more and more resources and marketing efforts towards the smaller items that carry with them oftentimes larger margins. Cost increases in terms of their Frito-Lay division were similar to the increases they saw in their beverage division. The primary driver, of course, was operational in nature, not in terms of the input costs. So things like corn, wheat, grains that go into a lot of the Frito-Lay snacks, they're seeing those prices stagnant, as well as the oils they use in most cases to fry these products. Interesting general notes taken directly from the conference call here that we kind of pulled out of it. Consumers are seeking more premium experiences. And I think this is, Leighton, one of the more interesting takeaways here is they kept mentioning the premium part of this. Yeah, absolutely. And you really see that with the branding that they have now with their baked chips and a lot of the lineup they have with their beverages as well. But what was interesting and what really stood out for me, at least, was they said across the spectrum of products they have, consumers continue to be interested in what they called health and wellness with differing definitions. And they said that this not necessarily is science-based. And this struck me as interesting because you see these executives really trying to ignore the fact that people are doing a little bit more investigating on their part to try to decipher what's nutritional and what's not in the food industry. And I think it would be really bad of them to ignore some of the underlying changes and trends that are happening in the industry off of what people are doing as far as looking into things like sugar and carbonated beverages to see the effects on the health. Not to say all of that is negative, but it seems as though they are kind of slow to react here. And I think that is why you've seen a lot of acquisitions occur in this market, because from the organic growth standpoint, PepsiCo really hasn't been able to adjust to people's behaviors other than trying to have these extensions such as life water and all of their bottled waters. But you see that more pronounced change in the industry overall is something they've looked at as they're looking more towards omni-channel and e-commerce capabilities that retailers have been implementing. And they said right now they could look at it in one of two ways. They can either be pessimistic and say that they may see losing margins because of this, or they could take the optimistic view seeing that they can really have some new avenues in order to do business. And I think they are taking the latter, looking towards these new avenues to really try to expand their portfolio and get them out to the consumer's eyes in a multitude of ways. You see a lot of products being sold on Amazon now through the Prime Pantry programs. And I think this is one of the ways they can really extend their portfolio and get their message out to consumers. But they didn't exactly say how they were going to do that other than they are going to be taking a positive attitude into how consumers are buying these general goods. For the full year guidance and stock price, they reiterated full year earnings per share right around $5.13 versus the $5.12 the consensus estimates were calling for. Shares were down slightly in trading on Tuesday after they announced earnings, but have since rebounded to around $114 a share. And this represents a massive market capitalization of around $162 billion with a price to earnings ratio of around 24. But shares, to put it in perspective, just came off of an all-time high in May of around $118 a share, and they're up over 9% for the calendar year. So as a company, as a publicly traded company, they have been performing 
very well and they do offer a fairly stout dividend to boot. We move into the fast casual burger segment. It seems like every week we do the same thing because there are so many fast casual burger operators, but here we have one of the original fast casual burger chains in Backyard Burgers as they plan for expansion as it turns 30 years old. So Backyard Burgers, let's go into a little bit of the history. Again, we call them kind of one of the original fast casual burger chains before all these other burger chains like Smash Burger and Habit Burger popped up throughout the country, as well as the increased popularity behind Five Guys and Shake Shack nationwide. The company's tagline is eat better burgers and the company is known for its burgers but also its side optionality. They have seasoned fries, waffle fries, as well as chili cheese fries, fried pickles, and baked potatoes. So a little bit of everything. If you haven't been to a backyard burgers, really kind of patterned after the idea that it is almost a product that you would get in someone's backyard at a cookout. Thus, the baked potato as part of the optionality, and they're one of the few fast food chains or QSRs or fast casual restaurants besides perhaps Wendy's that offer baked potatoes as a side. Now, we've talked about the company's history. They started in rural Mississippi in 1987. They were founded in a country store. As the company grew, it did so through drive through locations instead of dine-in concepts, but increasingly began to fold in the dine-in concepts throughout its store portfolio as it reached the 90s and 2000s. Since its inception, the company heavily marketed its use of black Angus beef, which has been the case for far longer than a number of other fast casual chains. The brand really rose to prominence in the early 2000s and by 2002 entered into a branding partnership with Yum Brands which Yum decided kind of not to use too extensively, opting for A&W growth instead. That didn't work out for anyone involved. It didn't work out for Yum. It didn't work out for A&W. And it ended up not working out for Backyard Burgers. The company was taken private by 2007. It was bought for around $38 million, which is a relative pittance considering the number of outlets they had because by the next year, the company had 180 locations, mostly throughout the South and Midwest. But after a series of issues in the earlier portion of this decade, in 2012, concerning the senior ranks in management, the company filed for bankruptcy. Debts of around $50 million were reported with assets of just over $10 million. So we talk about nearing the 200 store mark, but the company had falling sales in a lot of these stores, most notably from the Great Recession, and they had failed to keep their concept fresh in the consumers' minds. Most people were beginning to move away towards other fast casual concepts. So they had to shutter a lot of these locations that we talked about. The company was once again purchased by a private firm, in this case, Pharaoh's Capital, out of bankruptcy and emerged from bankruptcy with a new line of credit. Along with the new ownership group, they added a new CEO and David McDougal. Just one year after the bankruptcy filing, the company had fewer than half the number of locations it had going into bankruptcy, just 85 locations in spring 2013 after having shed off nearly a hundred in years time but now late they are back in a growth phase and they are seeking to grow now into their next 30 years of business you saw that the company actually had to trim a few more locations after Ferros capital bought them in 2012 but you see at the end of 2012 to around 2015 they closed around another 30 locations 
And the company has since stabilized the belief in something bigger and the lines of credit from the parent company, Pharos Capital, has given the company new life. And the chain obviously had to restructure their management as well as there were a lot of issues between 2011 and 2012. A lot of interesting articles really talking about the issues between different senior management officials during that time period. But the chain ended up having a new CEO, as you had mentioned, in David McDougal. And he really has taken the reins of this company, has really been bullish on the concept throughout the southeastern half of the United States. And you see the chain has plans to update technology now and remodel some of their older locations. So a lot of their remaining locations are a little bit of those older ones in the older parts of the country where they had first started growing. And you see these new locations that are being eyed are going to be in parts of Tennessee, most specifically Memphis, Knoxville, and Nashville. And in a quote from McDougal, he said, the reality is we were just not well positioned going into the financial crisis. Having said that, he sees that the downtown Nashville headquarters are a great place to grow the company. And he says, I think we're in a much better place today moving forward. I think it's about smart growth. It's about disciplined growth and profitable growth. And you can really see this here because throughout these locations that they're talking about within Tennessee, you're seeing that this really is the center for the franchise. You see a lot of locations on the outskirts there, but you're seeing that the most westernmost location actually lies in Lincoln, Nebraska, and the furthest east location in Raleigh, North Carolina. But the heart of their locations are going to be within that Missouri, Tennessee, Mississippi area. And I think right now you're seeing that this is really something that the CEO and his managers are excited about. You're seeing that this is what you consider very smart and very conservative growth. They really know this area and they're going to be more intimately familiar with what the customers want, what they're demanding. So I think right now with their more manageable portfolio of just 57 locations in 12 states, now is probably the time to grow out their concept. Even though one could criticize the company for growing now when you have a lot of other fast casual burger concepts emerging, but I think, again, they know their area, and I think this region is one that suits them the best. McDougal served as a senior vice president of quick service restaurant operations for Nexen Brands Incorporated, a multi-brand franchise company based in Atlanta. So he really does have a storied history within the quick service and full service restaurant industry. Nexen operated Marble Slab Creamery, Great American Cookie, and Pretzel Maker and had over 1,200 locations when he served as their senior vice president. But previous to that, McDougal actually spent 12 years with Cinnabon in multiple roles. And, and prior to that, he had actually served as an advisor through multiple different full-service restaurants. So I think with this experience and honing down on the locations they have left within their portfolio, he's been able to eye certain opportunities. And I think now you can say that even though the company is private, we can assume they are profitable now where they operate. I think this is a good time for the company to grow out in the southeastern United States. And I'm curious to see if they go back to some of the states they actually had to leave after the recession. And part of the reason we include Backyard Burgers on this show is because just this week it was announced that Axum Capital Partners had acquired a controlling stake in their chain. So this gives them even more capital than what they had with Pharaoh's Capital Group in the beginning. And that was something that McDougal actually mentioned after the partnership was announced with Axum 
and they expect to continue to grow out the chain, as Leighton mentioned, likely mostly in the southeast. And Axum, what I think is interesting with them is they're based out of Charlotte. So this gives them a little bit more of a feel around the Carolinas, which is an area that Backyard Burgers doesn't really have too many stakes in currently. And what's more is Axum actually has not that much under management. Currently, right now, you're looking at $100 million in revenue. They have holdings mostly in the restaurant and education sectors. Right now, its largest restaurant holding is Wild Wing Cafe, which is a chicken wing chain. So Backyard Burgers has the capacity to be Axum's potentially their largest holding that exists in the restaurant sector for them. And because of their familiarity with their area and their familiarity with the restaurant sector, they can pour some of this newfound capital and attention into backyard burgers. And it seems like a good match. And what's more is for Pharaoh's Capital, they get to sell out part of their stake in backyard burgers and kind of cash in on the turnaround plan that they executed since guiding the company out of bankruptcy five years ago. So it seems like a win all the way around for Backyard Burgers. And we would implore our listeners to kind of keep a head up and an eye out for Backyard Burgers as they seek profitable expansion in the American Southeast. You know, if you drink coffee, and I drink a ton of coffee every week, you may have noticed that the coffee you brew at home just never quite tastes as good as the coffee you get at your neighborhood coffee shop. I know that well. That's kind of why I stopped brewing coffee at all at home, which I used to do all the time. But now that problem can be solved with Third Wave Water and thirdwavewater.com. That's right, Trent. Third Wave Water does have a patent-pending formula of minerals that when added to a gallon of distilled water makes for coffee brewing magic. Recently at the U.S. Brewers' Cup Championship, both the first and second place finishers brewed their coffee with third wave water. Third wave water costs on average just 10 cents per cup of coffee. And I can tell you from experience, I've used the product. It is worth it. I've used it in a French press. I've used it in an aero press. I've used it now in a pour over. Fantastic all across the board. And now if you go to thirdwavewater.com and use the promo code FOCUS, you'll get 10% off your first order. It almost seems too good to be true to tie into our sponsor, Third Wave Water, but our next story is actually about Maxwell House, but for good reason, as Maxwell House releases a new Max line of coffees. As we so often do on the Food Focus, let's give you a brief company background. The brand started in 1892, was named in honor of the Maxwell House Hotel, which has served the special blend that was created sometime in the late 1880s by Joel Cheek, who was a wholesale grocer in Nashville, and Roger Nolly Smith, who was a British coffee broker. Until the 1980s, the coffee was the highest selling brand in the U.S. before eventually being overtaken in terms of market share. Cheek partnered with Nashville coffee distributor John Neal in the early 1900s and in 1915, they began using their slogan, Good to the Last Drop, which is now one of the more iconic slogans in terms of food and food service in the United States. This was used, of course, to advertise their regular blend of Maxwell House copy. Now, fast forward to today, the brand is owned by Kraft, which is the third largest food and beverage company in North America, the fifth largest food and beverage company in the world. And 
Kraft sought to revitalize the image of Maxwell House some time ago. This rollout of the new Max Coffee comes as part of that brand refresh to try and make Maxwell House more appealing to the consumer of today. Maxwell House is certainly no stranger to reinvestment and marketing of their banner. You see, it's widely cited that the company gained the most traction in the 1920s. In 1921, they were spending around $20,000. Just four years later, they were spending around $210,000 on marketing their brand with their popular slogan. In 2007, if you fast forward, you can see that the publicly traded company announced a plan to switch to 100% Arabica beans, drifting away from the blends that included the Robusta bean, which is seen as a lesser quality bean that is grown throughout parts of Asia. In 2014, the company again said that they were dedicating around 20 to $25 million on an extensive rebranding campaign to boost sales and refresh the Maxwell House image. And that they did. This was after years of spending cuts, but the company was still getting a lot of money coming in from the Maxwell House brand, having contributed almost $1 billion in annual sales. The brand was still having some lasting appeal. Their main goal was to take back that number one spot that they had lost in the 1980, and that was to Folgers, which had then kept their spot throughout the next 20 or so years. The new slogan for the company is say good morning to a good day. J.M. Smucker, a company that we actually recently covered on their last earnings call, has two of the most popular brand extensions in the United States, one being Folgers, one being Dunkin' Donuts Coffee. So you can see that competition certainly has heightened inside the United States. Those figures were from 2016. In fact, saying that the most popular brands are actually aside from the Maxwell House brand. They have also been trying to capitalize on a growing market share within the K-Cup market are their competitors and in 2016 you saw that u.s coffee brand sales were also at an all-time high folgers coming in still number one with all of their brands maxwell house came in at number two however it was reported that folgers total sales were almost double that of maxwell houses we fast forward to now 2017 and you see that they're still losing this overall battle even though you can say that being a distant number two isn't all that bad considering they are taking in a lot of annual revenue and profitable revenue at that. The company has recently announced a new line of Max by Maxwell House blends designed to appeal to a younger consumer that is more focused on personalization. And one will be focused on the higher levels of caffeine per cup, while the other will be focused on different flavors. And when I say one and then the other, there's actually going to be two extensions off this Max by Maxwell House blend, the Max Boost, which we'll talk about in a second, and the Max Indulge. The overall Max by Maxwell House trademark is actually owned by Kraft Heinz and was filed around July 19th of 2016. So they've had this in the works for some time. They've just been kind of mulling out the details and seeing how they're going to be offering this to the general public, Trent. But you can see with these two different options, they do have the younger consumer in mind, or at least the one that is focused on customizability. That is correct. And there are a number of more fashionable coffee products that aren't in the traditional brand realm like Maxwell House that will provide 
an energy boost to coffee, be that through caffeine or guarana or a number of vitamin and mineral blends. And Maxwell House is trying to capitalize on this trend. With Max Boost, as Layton mentioned, it's designed with that customizability in mind. So they offer heightened caffeine levels throughout their different blends. You have a caffeine level that is 1.25 times the amount of a normal cup of coffee, one that's 1.5 times, and one that's 1.75 times the average cup of coffee in terms of caffeine content. The larger overarching claim is that this variability has no effect on the taste of the coffee and there's no major changes in coffee preparation for the end user either. Now, one thing that they haven't said yet in the release is whether they are using some sort of outside caffeine source or whether they are actually roasting the coffee at a lighter level. Generally speaking, this isn't always the case, but if you roast a coffee at a lighter level, usually a Mexico blend, for example, will be roasted at a lighter level. You get a greater amount of caffeine from that roast, whereas if you get, say, a French roast or something of that nature, you'll have less caffeine in the coffee. So we don't know based on their press releases, based on the publicly available information, whether this is via brewing method that they're increasing the amount of coffee versus their traditional blend, or whether it's via an external caffeine source of some sort. My guess is probably external caffeine source of some sort, but we'll see as more details emerge from this Max line by Maxwell House. Now, the Max Indulge, which is not the part that's necessarily concerned with caffeine, this is where the company is looking to offer a somewhat varied flavor assortment, and they want to go beyond just the traditional hazelnut blend and that type of thing. Right now, they have three flavors that they're rolling out. They have mocha, which is more traditional, certainly. A mocha and salted caramel. Salted caramel was an it flavor a couple of years ago. The popularity's waned a little bit, but is still popular with a lot of larger coffee operators like Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks. And then finally, mocha and s'mores, which honestly, s'mores has mocha in it. If you were to make a s'mores drink at a coffee shop, it would have some of the chocolate sauce or chocolate syrup in it. So saying mocha and s'mores is kind of redundant. That's beside the point, though. Basically, you have these three different flavors. All of them have some sort of chocolate in them to try and boost the flavor profile and add to that customizability. Now, the real question is here, will consumers buy into this or will they go towards other brands of coffee where maybe there's a little more of an aura of the quality of coffee, whether that be Starbucks or whether that be another store brand or whether they be getting coffee from the coffee roaster directly. They've got this kind of in-between segment that they're trying to market to with this Max Indulge line. And I think this is reflective in Luke Cole's quote. Luke Cole is the director of marketing for coffee at the Kraft Heinz Company. And he said, and I quote, Younger consumers love the taste of coffee but are looking to other beverage categories for functional benefits to address their different needs throughout the day. Max by Maxwell House meets the needs of consumers who live busy lifestyles. And so you look at Luke Cole's quote and you kind of parse it out. You mentioned the younger consumers here. However, one thing that I think Maxwell House is overlooking is the base quality of the beans. If you're using Maxwell House as your base blend for either of these, 
Younger consumers aren't always looking that way. When you look at the millennials that are going to third wave coffee shops or even locally owned coffee shops or even the likes of Caribou Coffee or Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts, they're looking for coffee that transcends that typical Folgers or Maxwell House statement. And I think in this circumstance, these are flavor extensions that will end up appealing more towards people that are a little bit older maybe than that younger consumer that they're attempting to target. Do I like the idea of this product coming out? Absolutely. I think they have nothing to lose with rolling out these additional flavor extensions and, of course, the extra caffeinated product line. I think everyone is looking for that extra caffeine at this point in time. Do I think it will resonate with younger consumers? Probably not, but time will tell. Yeah, you have to wonder if it's a little bit too late here for Maxwell House as they really are trying to appeal to the younger millennial consumer. I think right now, if you look at 2016 sales, you're saying that private label brands have really come into the fray, not necessarily showing their improved price point, but also a better perceived quality from the core consumer. And I think total private label brand sales are indicative of that. If you look now, they're actually in the number three spot in terms of brand sales inside the United States with Starbucks right behind. So I think overall, the consumer is more worried about not only the value they're getting from these different banners, but also the quality that they're getting. And I think this customizability, while it's a very nice option for some people, and this will definitely sell some units, this isn't going to be an all-out failure, I don't think. But I think overall, they need to keep their sights on what the emerging consumer is seeing as their most important features. And I think if Maxwell House were to go back to kind of their roots here and try to portray a quality brand, one that really has a lot of flavor, bold flavor, from a very quality bean, something they were talking about in 2007 when they were switching to the 100% Arabica blends. I think this is going to be something that is going to be a long-lasting trend, something they can regain their brand momentum with. We will stay in prepackaged foods as Campbell's Soup Company continues to grow through acquisition. Campbell announced last Thursday that they will be buying Pacific Foods Company for $700 million dollars. Pacific Foods has a large portfolio of both foods and beverages. One media outlet's headline was, One soup company buys another soup company, but that is not necessarily the case here. Even though they do have a large lineup of soups and broths, Pacific Foods is a company that has prepackaged foods in a multitude of areas. They sell canned tomatoes, beans, meats, dips, oatmeal, sauces, purees, and even nut and soy beverages. Things like almond milk, for instance, are one of their main facets. But the company has roots that date back nearly 30 years. And according to Pacific Foods website, they are focused on sustainable farming, organic products, and a sense of community, trying to build up their localized image. And they believe that more care that goes into food production means the tastier the end result will be. And these are some of the big underlying reasons why we think Campbell was said to have eyed this acquisition in the first place. We talked last week about McCormick Foods making acquisitions in the healthier food space as well, trying to diversify their holdings. And this is something that Campbell has also done over the past decade. As we see from the growth and eventual sale now, or the pending sale of Whole Foods, 
consumers are beginning to care more and more about where their foods are coming from, how they're being processed. And it's one of the reasons why you see increased organic and all-natural selections in grocery stores throughout the country. Pacific Foods, as a brand, they play right into this. And they've made it clear through their product labeling and through their marketing efforts. Their message to the consumer, according to their website, is if you can't pronounce an ingredient, don't eat it. And Campbell, when you look at their history of acquisitions, Bolthouse Farms being another recent acquisition, they are trying to scoop up companies in this vein. In its release, Campbell touted the Pacific Foods position as a natural foods industry pioneer that has strong health and well-being and organic credentials. This plays into what Campbell is trying to do as they expand out from just the typical red and white cans of soup that I think many people associate Campbell with to owning a stronger brand portfolio in the natural and organic foods segment. Campbell Soup CEO Denise Morrison told Fortune in an interview regarding expansion by purchasing companies that this expansion in this expansion format, much like with McCormick, allows them to expand into faster growing spaces without doing so necessarily organically, without having to overhaul factories that are already in place, without having to overhaul production facilities, without having to overhaul distribution capacity for the company. They're picking up all of this when they just buy a company outright. And this is something that other prepackaged food companies have noticed. Every time we talk about a prepackaged food company here on the show, we talk about just how many areas that company owns and what other branches that company owns. We talked about PepsiCo, for example, earlier owning Quaker, and this is no different with Campbell's Soup. In fact, there's almost this market pressure for these prepackaged food companies to grow through acquisition in this way. Now, for those worried that the acquisition by a company that has a nearly 16 billion market cap will change the fundamentals of the business, really no need to be concerned. Here is Denise Morrison did assure everyone that they'll be keeping the company's roots intact. You really feel like they've been able to do that with some of their other acquisitions. When we talked about Bolthouse Juice moments ago, I think that would be one acquisition where not only have they kept the company's roots intact, but also they're able to throw behind the company their solid research and development budget to come out with different products, extensions, and different lines. If anything, customers of Pacific Foods and the various Pacific Food brands will begin to find more of those products on the shelves, especially given Campbell's connection with grocery stores. Because they have a larger distribution network, because they provide more products, they can more easily access shelf space from the likes of Walmart and Kroger that are so tough to come by for independent operators. What's interesting here is if you look on their company's website, Pacific Foods really does talk about sustainable farming and how their foods actually taste better and, and how they've actually grown them better through a number of different newer processes. But they talk about sustainable packaging and how their unique packaging process actually preserves the flavor in their food. So they also have that. I'm curious to see if Campbell's actually utilizes some of what they've done there, maybe acquire some of the patent technology that they've created surrounding how they deliver the foods to the retailers into trying to keep that flavor intact. But overall, you see shares of Campbell's Soup Company are at a 1.5-year low, giving way to the idea that this may be just one of many more acquisitions in the future as the company looks for growth outside of its own organic operations, their own R&D from within. 
Shares are around $151, having reached an all-time high of around $160 a share in July of last year. But if you look at the five-year graph, it really hasn't been so smooth for Campbell's Soup Company. You see a younger CEO and Denise Morrison really trying to turn the company and their motives around. Still, the company has a hefty price-to-earnings ratio of around 32 which would indicate some future growth there, maybe some future acquisition, or at least that's maybe what some shareholders are hoping for. Well, we've reached the final segment of the Food Focus podcast now, where each Leighton and I give you one product that's new to us or new to the world of food that we sampled during the course of the last week. And as we often do, we'll begin with Leighton. The product I tried, its parent company is General Mills, who was actually the older parent company of Maxwell House Coffee. Nature Valley Biscuits is something I tried. They have a new biscuit out with peanut butter. They're these oval-shaped biscuits where there's peanut butter in the middle and a crunchy cookie on the outside. And it's interesting because these are in packs that are similar to something you would get granola bars in. So there's about five packets, five 1.35-ounce packets to be exact, per overall package the price points around three dollars and it caught my eye not only because it was new but it looked as though it's all natural and if you look at the ingredients the actual package doesn't say it's all natural but the ingredients sure would make you think it is the first ingredients actually going to be whole grain flour but then also followed by canola oil and peanut butter honey syrup tapioca and baking soda so obviously there are probably some artificial ingredients some artificial flavors built in there but you see the overall taste with this or at least for me was a little bit of a dry cookie one with a lot of flavor but one with not a lot of texture so i recommend you to try this but overall it was something that was fairly dry although having anything with a biscuit or having a biscuit surrounding the peanut butter you should look to have it be a little bit dry overall. From the price point perspective, I think this was a fairly good value. Again, five of these per box at around a $3 price point. I got them at my local Walmart for around $2.98, but a pretty good buy and something new that I decided to try because not only was it new to me, it was also new to the overall industry. So I think this is something you should go out and try, something fairly inexpensive and well worth your money and time. I'm going to look at things from the food service perspective today. I got a chance to try a newer product, at least in terms of distribution from Big Train. Now, the Big Train company oftentimes will produce powdered chai. They also have a powdered form of lemonade that you'll get at a lot of local QSRs and fast casual chains and coffee shops and that type of thing. If you have a frozen lemonade, chances are good that it's a Big Train brand frozen lemonade. And I had a chance to try their powdered mango passion green tea. Now, you can only buy this in terms of food service capacity as these bags are fairly large. They, each bag carries about 68 ounce servings of this. And the reason I got a chance to try this was I was kicking around a few new products that Big Train had to offer. And like I said, this isn't completely new to Big Train, but new in terms of larger distribution. It's got green tea in it, which means it does have some caffeine. It is dairy free if that is a concern. And you can serve it either shaken or stirred with ice cubes or blended in a blender with ice. I found it honestly a little bit sweet. It was probably a little bit sweeter than what I would have been interested in trying. But still, Big Train produces a number of solid products that are 
sweetened with natural sugars, either cane sugar or honey and that type of thing. And I recommend you try out the brand if you feel like buying something that's in that type of quantity. Well, for Leighton, I'm Trent saying so long for this edition of the Food Focus. This week on the Retail Focus, we'll have an interview about the French girl and the French girl's impact on retail sales in the U.S. Follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus, and we'll see you one week from now. This has been the Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Thank you.